Thanks so much to Helen for leading our worship this morning and all the musicians. Thanks to Ian for leading our prayers. Um, thanks to our fantastic tech team who get everything working. Um, just thank you so much to everybody who serves to make our services possible to enable us to worship in the way that we do. Um, it's so easy just to take these things for granted, but we shouldn't. So thank you to all who serve our church. So I want to begin today with a question. And I'm going to need you just to, to shout out some answers. There's nothing too taxing, don't worry. I know you don't come here to work. Can I just a quick show of hands? Who believes Winston Churchill existed? Yeah, not everyone. Oh, interesting. <laughs> those, those that are listening <clears throat> believe Winston Churchill existed. Why? Sorry? Historical evidence. Historical evidence, yeah. Yeah, what, 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 sort, of, what sort of things? Um, uh, texts that he's written, uh, speeches. Yep, texts. Accounts. Brilliant. Okay, so we've got eyewitness accounts. We've got um, texts that he's written, speeches that he gave. Yep. Um, anybody else? Alan? I went round, put a vote on with a banner after the war. Vote, vote, vote for Winston Churchill. He's the one that won the war. Okay, so you actually remember him. Yeah, you, you're, you're an eyewitness. Fantastic. <clears throat> I'm saying nothing. Very wise is what you mean. Um, okay, and, 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 and oh, Terry. You were at his funeral? Okay, brilliant. Well, not brilliant, but I mean, yeah, you know. <laughs> Great. Okay. So, these are the sorts of things that, that we, we trust that Winston Churchill existed. Those of us who, who weren't old enough, who aren't old enough to have actually seen him, we trust the evidence that Winston Churchill existed. So what about, um, go a bit further back, um, Oliver Cromwell. Um, Oliver Cromwell, I think he was from around these parts, wasn't he? Yeah, somewhere East Anglia. Troublemakers, you lot, honestly. God. Oliver Cromwell. Um, so I don't think we've got anybody here who would have remembered Cromwell. <laughs> what, what is it? So, so I think it's probably fair to say most, most people, I would be surprised if there's anybody who said, I don't believe Cromwell ever existed. But why? What do we base that on? What sort of evidence do we need in order to satisfy ourselves that Oliver Cromwell existed? Been to the house where he lived. Okay, yeah, yep. Anything else? There were many witnesses. There were many witnesses. Yep. Yep. So there would have been diarists and other people who who recorded their their accounts of having seen seen Cromwell. There are portraits of him. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. There 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 are portraits. So we can, um, we can trust that there's enough different portraits that um, we, we know what he looked like. I believe what I've taught in history class. Okay, yeah, we, we, we put our, our trust in what we've been taught. Absolutely. But you see, there's a difference, isn't there, um, between um, the evidence for Winston Churchill He's recent enough for us to say, well, I want to be able to, to see photographs, to read speeches, to have first-hand accounts. There are people who, who actually um, will bear witness. I saw him. I was at his funeral. I remember him. When we go back to someone like Cromwell, we're relying very heavily on trusting accounts of the time. And there are portraits and there are, um, I dare say, parliamentary minutes and that sort of thing that we can go back to. And we trust, we trust these things. Um, one last one then. Um, Julius Caesar. What do we want in a way of evidence to convince ourselves that Julius Caesar existed? Alan, you're on fire this morning. My 
you've got some coins with this picture on. Okay, yep. Right, so, so we, we've got um, an interpretation of, of what of events that he was involved in, yeah? Okay, so a historical, um, a historical archive, if you like. You see, the further back in time we go, so our understanding of evidence changes. We know it's unreasonable to say, well, I've, I've never actually met anybody who, um, who, who remembers Julius Caesar, therefore I don't believe in him. That would be ridiculous, of course. And it would be also be ridiculous to say, well, I've never seen, I've never seen a, a video or a photograph of him, so I don't trust it. We, we know that would be unreasonable. So what we need to do for this morning's sermon, we need to decide... What does it take for us to accept Jesus? Now, we will all have different ideas, different answers to that question. And I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think. And as we, as we, as we talk about Jesus, some of us will have been brought up in a Christian home and will have just always... Jesus has just been a constant feature of our lives We've, we've, we've always been encouraged to, to pray, to talk to God. We've always read the stories in the Bible. We know Jesus so well that we just accept that Jesus existed. And we may never have actually said to ourselves, well, why? Why do I believe that? Why do I accept this? Equally, it might be that we're in church today for the first time, knowing nothing of Jesus, nothing of the stories in the Bible and his teachings and, and everything else, thinking, this is nonsense. This is, I, I, I completely reject this. Well, to both ends of that spectrum, I would say it is really, really important that we ask ourselves the question, for me, what does it take for me to accept that Jesus existed? What, what evidence do I want? And it's helpful to think, um, of, in terms of, well, what other historical figures? Why do I accept that Caesar existed? A similar sort of period of history, give or take a few hundred, couple of hundred years. Um, why do I accept that Caesar existed? What, what evidence do I have? And a lot of time, it just comes down to trusting what we've been taught. Now, when we, when we look back at historical figures... Um, for some, there's very good evidence. For some, there's not so much evidence. But let's just remember that we live in a, a country that has a justice system that accepts um, that when, when a jury is satisfied that they have been convinced beyond reasonable doubt, then they give their verdict. So it's really important when we, when we think about Jesus that we don't demand an absolute watertight case there cannot be an absolute watertight case for Jesus or for any other historical figure. There will always be accusations of evidence being tampered with, accusations of, of testimony being falsified. Jesus is not alone in, in historians looking at different sources and arguing over who said what and what it means, how to interpret different bits of evidence. But for us each as individuals, if we are to accept Jesus, we need to recognize when we get to the point at which his case has been given to us and we accept it beyond reasonable doubt. Jesus himself recognized there will always be a gap in the evidence. And that gap is what we bridge with faith. That is where faith comes into it. So, this preaching series we're doing at the moment, those of you who have, who have been around for the past few weeks will know that we're, sort of, we're working through um, some of the questions that the Alpha Course raises. Because when we launched the Alpha Course in September, like I said last week, um, in, over the summer, I want you to be inviting people, inviting friends, family, neighbours, colleagues, anybody else that you might see that you think, actually, I'd love to invite them along. 
And the question will be, well, why should I come? And I'm hoping that by the end of this series, you'll have a fairly good idea of what it is you're inviting them to and why, why you're inviting them. But one of the things that the Alpha Course will seek to do is to take people through the process of looking at Jesus, the, the character of Jesus. Sherlock Holmes was famous for his process of deduction. And often in the Conan Doyle stories, we will read Holmes explaining to Watson that the process of deduction means that you take all the different theories that could have explained how the body ended up in the locked room with the key on the inside or whatever it happens to be. You take all the different theories and discount them one by one, having examined them. And then the one that you're left with, however unlikely it seems, that's the one that answers the question. That was Sherlock Holmes' approach. People generally think he was quite good at his job, despite being a fictional character. And so hopefully, when we look at the body of evidence for Jesus, which we're going to be doing this week and next week, we too will come to the point where we can accept beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be. So to begin with, I've got a table here, which, apologies, it's a little bit small print. If you're at the back, you might need to squint a bit. But this is a table which sets out various different his historical texts. So we've got the Iliad by Homer. Um, we've, got, we've got works by all sorts of different um, uh, philosophers or historical um, academic figures. Um, we've got Caesar's Gallic Wars. We've got Livy's History of Rome. All sorts of things up there. And we've also, also got the New Testament. Now, the reason I'm putting this up there is because it's a, it's a really interesting table. Take, for instance, Caesar's Gallic Wars. It was written between 100 years and 44 years BC. The earliest available copy that we have was written in 900 AD. So it was written a thousand years, this copy was written a thousand years after the original. We have no other copies. We have no original copy. We trust that the copy that was written a thousand years after the original truly reflects the original. So it's like saying, the text has been passed down, whether orally or whether in fragments here and there. And if I had a, if there was a book that was written a thousand years ago, a thousand, so this is pre, uh, no, it's not, it's, it's just, it's a couple of centuries after the Battle of Hastings. No, it's not. It's a thousand years since, it's, it's it'd be pre-Battle of Hastings. Sorry, I'm getting my math horribly wrong. So we're talking about a book that was written um, 40, something years before the Battle of Hastings, right? And I was to say, I'm going to put together a new version. And someone said, well, based on what? Well, I sort of, I know bits of it. People have told me what it says. I know that there's, there's, there's the odd manuscript fragment here and there. I'm going to put them all together, and I'm going to, I'm going to rewrite it and reissue it as, as a, a true version of that book. That's kind of what happened with Caesar's Gallic Wars. The fragments were pulled together, the, the, the hearsay was pulled together, and the process was gone through of putting it all into a readable history. To me, that's not the most convincing. When I read that book, I'm not convinced that it's exactly as the original would have been. And yet, I would be in a minority. Historians say, no, this, is, this, has been, this has been worked through, this has been studied, this, has been, um, this forms, uh, um, gives us a lot of information about Caesar's time, about the, the period that is written about. This is a reliable body of evidence. Similar thing with, with the history of Rome by Livy. So we've got up there, it was written um, around about Jesus' time, 59 BC to 17 AD, that sort of time. 
Um, the earliest copy is from the fourth century, so from 400 years after it was written. Um, that's only fragments of manuscripts, it's only a partial copy. There's, there's a fair chunk there, but it's not complete by any means. The, the, um, the rest of it that we have comes from the 10th century, so that's a thousand years after it was first written. But again, as a history, it's considered a reliable resource. It's considered something that we can, we can go back to and accept as a trustworthy source. The New Testament, written between 50 and 100 AD. So it's written a generation after the events that it was about. We've got the earliest copies we've got from 114 years AD. We've got fragments. We've got complete books from 200 AD. Most of the New Testament in one, um, in one uh, document from 250 AD. And then a complete New Testament from 325 AD. So the period of time that has passed between the New Testament being written and the earliest copies that we have, in other words, the period of time in which the document can be manipulated and can be twisted and can be added to or taken away from, the period of time is at most 225 years. So if we go back to Caesar's Gallic Wars, that period of time is a thousand years, and yet we accept that as a reliable document. If we look at Livy's history of Rome, that's, depending on which bit we're looking at, anything from 400 to a thousand years. So if we're going to accept Caesar's Gallic Wars, Livy's history of Rome, or any of the other works up there, if we're going to accept them as reliable sources of evidence, then we must also be prepared to accept the New Testament as a reliable source of evidence, as a historical document. Also, of course, you can see there the last column, the number of copies. The number of copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10 copies that were written around 1,000 years after the original. 10 copies. It's not a lot. The New Testament, we have 5,366 copies. Some are in Latin, some are in Greek, some are in other languages. Because the, the New Testament had been, had been shared and spread, people had taken time to translate it, but we have over 5,000 copies from that time. You see, if you're looking at this not as, not as a piece of, um, of God's word, but if you're looking at the New Testament as a piece of historical evidence, then it stands up to scrutiny. Historians accept that it does stand up to scrutiny as a historical text. So, apologies if that is all a little bit silent witness, and you're feeling a little bit, oh, come on, get on to the good stuff, tell us about Jesus. But it is important because when people come to Alpha Course, there is often a cynicism. There is often um, a, almost a willingness to, to just reject and not accept evidence. Because they say, well, all right, so it was written, it was written when it was written. I, don't, I still don't believe it. Okay, that's fine. We'll come on to the belief bit. And next week, we're going to be coming on to, to Jesus being the Son of God and the evidence for his claims to be who he claimed to be. But this week, we are talking about, do we accept that Jesus the man existed? We do, we do accept as evidence these other documents that were written a long, long time ago, had a massive gap between when they were first written and when our first copy of them was written. This massive gap in which details and characters and, and things that were said can be twisted and changed and taken away from. But the New Testament stands alone as a historical source. And it's reasonable to accept it as, as such. So that's the New Testament, but we also have evidence from other historians. 
Roman historians, Jewish historians, who wrote about Jesus. These people don't feature in scripture because they weren't part of, of the story of Jesus, but their works are still worth reading. Here we have a quote from a Jewish historian called Josephus, who writes, now there was about this time a wise man, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. So Jesus, as a historical figure is written about in other sources outside of the Bible. And so again, we can, we can trust these sources. Other aspects of Josephus' work have been, have been very, very important in forming our understanding of the events and, and the, the, the culture of that time. And so if we choose to cherry-pick the bits we believe and discount the bits that we don't like, that's not that doesn't make sense. It's not a logical approach. We either accept what this historian told us or we reject the whole body of work. But there's more, isn't there? Because that's about the New Testament, the evidence for, for accepting the New Testament. If, why should we accept that the New Testament is a reliable piece of evidence? Well, hopefully that's helps you to think more about what, what you're prepared to accept as evidence. But also, surely, if Jesus was a fraud, if Jesus was created by the authors of the New Testament to try and suit their own political agenda or to try and gain some sort of reputation in the world, or if Jesus existed but they wanted to portray him as the son of God, even though they knew really that he wasn't, what would they portray? They wouldn't portray someone like Jesus. You see, if I was going to write about the son of God, I'd want to portray a superhero. I'd want to portray someone who was, who was a motivator, who was powerful, who, who kind of had all the answers. I wouldn't write about their weaknesses. Now, you might say, well, Jesus never had weaknesses. Let's just explore that a little bit. John 4, verse 6. Just before Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman by the well... We're told Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. A tiny detail on its own, yeah, not evidence, but it does at least show us Jesus, Jesus had the same weakness that we all had. After a long journey in the heat of the day, he was knackered. I can identify with that. Yeah, that's, that's, that rings true. He, he suffered tiredness. If I'm creating a kind of a, a superhero character, I don't want to talk about the fact they feel a bit tired every now and then, need to have a sit down and a drink. Matthew 4, verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> really, Sherlock? Makes sense. But again, he felt hunger. He wasn't immune to the, the, the need to eat. These little details just help us to accept, okay, yeah, he, he felt tiredness, he felt hunger. What else? He got angry. We like to think of the Lamb of God being all nice and cuddly and loving, and, but Jesus got angry. 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? Jesus felt anger. To think of him as this image of angelic peace. We get him wrong. He felt anger, just like you or I. But he wasn't angry all the time. When a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've, 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 I've got all this money, I've kept your commandments, I've been good, I've kept them all since I was a boy. What do I need to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And before Jesus came out with a fairly stark judgment on him, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus had compassion. He loved this guy. This guy came up to him and essentially said, look, I've, I've done all the things you, you tell me to do. I've, I've not committed adultery. I've not committed murder. I've, I've, been, I've been a good person. So, um, yeah, what, what, what do I need to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? I've, I've done everything, I think. And Jesus just looks at him and loves him. And how many times do we fail on that front? How good would it be if we could just, without even trying feel love for those who come to us with all their, their faults and their problems, all their attitudes. If we could put all of our faults and problems and attitudes to one side and just have that heart that just loved. Jesus felt love. But there's another point in this, in this story. This story goes on that Jesus said to this very rich, very wealthy young man, one thing you lack Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. There was another, there's another story where Jesus is walking along um, a road entering Jericho and there's a little tax collector called Zacchaeus. Uh, the guy is he's quite short and he's, he's being a tax collector. He's not popular. He doesn't have many friends and he's, the crowds that are gathered to see Jesus would likely give him a pasting rather than give him a hug. And so he wants to, he wants to keep away and he, he, he climbs a tree so we can see Jesus. And Jesus looks up as he walks into Jericho and says, get down from there. I'm, I'm, I'm having lunch with you. I'm coming to your house for tea. And we don't know what was said, but over that meal, this very, very wealthy man, this very, very corrupt man, came out and, after the meal, announced that he was going to give the vast majority of his wealth away. Now, these two stories, we've got two very wealthy individuals that meet Jesus, and Jesus' instructions to them, it's not, <laughs> it's not what would happen if perhaps a politician was entering town. And a politician was said, was spoken to by someone of massive wealth, what can I do? Because, you see, a, a politician would probably get a pretty sizable donation to his party or her party. Jesus wasn't in this for self. In both these stories, with the rich young man and with the tax collector Zacchaeus, they give money away. Jesus doesn't benefit from this because Jesus didn't come to earth to benefit himself. He came to earth to benefit others. We don't see greed, we see love. We also see Jesus feeling grief when a friend of his, Lazarus, has died and Jesus goes and gets to his hometown a little bit too late. We're given the shortest verse in the Bible with two words. Jesus wept. So this man... He wasn't immune to grief. He wasn't immune to grief. Now, if you were creating the character of the Son of God, 
If you were writing to convince people, I'm not convinced that you'd show him being tired. I'm not convinced that you'd show him being hungry or getting angry. I'm not convinced that you'd show him sad. These aren't positive characteristics. But what they do is they add to the reliability of the presentation of the character of Jesus that we read about in the Gospel. These little details, which on their own you can think, Tom, it's not even worth mentioning. But it is, because by looking at these, we we get a picture of a normal person. Someone who was fully man. A character that we can believe in. Jesus had... He had a job and he had family. Mark 6, verse 3, when he went back to his hometown, people said, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't that Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So we see that he had a family and he had had a job. He was a carpenter. Again, little details, but they help us to, to see the character of Jesus, they all add bit by bit to the body of evidence that Jesus can be trusted. The accounts of Jesus in the gospel that, that Jesus, the historical figure, can be trusted. We also know Jesus was tempted. We don't always like thinking about Jesus being tempted, do we? But right at the beginning, of Mark's Gospel. That should actually be 1.13. Apologies if anybody's um, following. Mark 1.13. He was in a desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Again, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't immune to temptation. Jesus felt temptation. This is important because if Jesus was immune to temptation, then I can't identify with him because I'm not immune to temptation. He didn't walk my path. But Jesus, he did feel tempted. He resisted temptation. That's where his path and my path often differ. Because I am not Jesus. But we can see, we can identify with Jesus. He felt temptation. He knows what it's like to feel temptation. Finally, the suffering. The account of the crucifixion of Jesus is not an account of heroism. It is not an account of someone who said, come on then, do your worst, bring it on. I'll have the lot of you. It wasn't like that. If anything, it's a bit pathetic. We see someone refusing to speak up for themselves when they're suffering this massive injustice. We see someone refusing to defend themselves even though they could have done We see someone who who actually reprimands one of his friends for trying to defend him. He says, no, no, this is my time. He stays silent, he's meek, he just accepts every every injustice, every beating, he suffers. If If you're going to write about a character that you want people to buy into, you don't write about this Jesus, you don't write this. The only reason you write this is because you're giving a truthful and accurate account of what you saw and of what you've heard and that the eyewitnesses that you've spoken to have contributed to. And then you put it out there. And you put it out there into a world full of people who know eyewitnesses, who can verify or, or test the claims of what you've written in the gospel. And so what we find is that the gospel actually stands up to scrutiny. We live in a world that demands watertight cases. And that's why I started off this morning by pointing out that we cannot have a watertight case for figures from thousands of years ago. And with Jesus, there will always be a faith gap. There is meant to be a faith gap. When Jesus reappeared to his disciples... All but one of them were gathered in a room and they touched his wounds and they spoke to him and then they reported it back to the one who wasn't there, Thomas. And Thomas doesn't believe them. And so eventually Jesus appears to him as well. 
And he can see the wounds. He's invited to touch them. He's invited to, to test the body, physical body of evidence that stands before him. And at that point, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have not seen Jesus. I cannot say, hey Jesus, come in, come on down, say hello to everyone. It doesn't work like that because that would be removing faith. And faith is required. We are asked to have faith. But it's not faith built on a whimsical fancy. It's not faith that is just empty and pointless. It's a faith that is backed up by more evidence than the majority of historical characters. We see as well consistency in Jesus' teaching. If he was just if he was if he was mad, if he was unstable mentally, then there wouldn't be the consistency. He'd have a very confused message. It would have been a scattergun approach. There may have been some goodness, but there would have been some very questionable teachings as well, because that's that's the pattern that we see when someone isn't mentally stable. People have said, well, Jesus, he was, he, was, he was mad. Some have said that people who saw his miracles, they must have been on drugs. There's been all sorts of people trying, who have, ways in which people have tried to explain Jesus' ministry. But Jesus consistently points to himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He pointed to himself, he invited people to him. He pointed to himself, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Other historical teachers, other religious teachers, point away from themselves and point to God. Jesus is the only one who says, I am. He's the only one who directs people to him who's, who's prepared to put himself up and say, look, I am the way. Test my teachings. Test my, my acts. Test my life. Test the prophecies. But come to me. Come to me. Jesus had walked the walk that we have. Jesus had lived life. He was born into a pretty lowly condition. He knew what hardship was. He knew what it was to go without. He had to work for a living. He'd had to train. He'd had to go through all the, the rigmaroles of life. And so when he says to, to his followers, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he knows what it is to be weary. He knows what it is to be burdened. He knows that the world which he saw created is not perfect, but he knows it will be one day. And he knows that he can offer an eternal rest. So, as we, as we prepare to finish up this morning, I just want to remind us that as we go through life, God slowly but surely reveals himself to us. Now that can happen on a very personal level, but it happens on an evidential level as well. When I was at, when I was at college, um, there was a brilliant lecturer there. His name's Peter Lalleman. He's still, he still teaches at Spurgeon's College. Um, and he's, he's a Dutchman. Um, and he's, he's very into um, archaeology. And he shared a story with us. He said, when I started speech, teaching, teaching and lecturing at Spurgeon's College, um, it was in 1990. And at that time, King David, that we read about in Scripture, as far as any historian was concerned, didn't exist. It was, he's simply a character in Scripture. King David, there's no evidence whatsoever. He said... If I went to an archaeological conference and spoke about David, 
then I would be laughed out of the room. I, I, people just didn't take David seriously. And then he said in 1992, on an archaeological dig in, I think, Egypt, a stone was dug up which had references to different houses of different people, and one of them was the House of David. And that was the first time that there had ever been archaeological evidence removed from the ground which, which verified this House of David. And he said it verified it because there were also other households mentioned which, which, which people know about. So he said that added a lot of weight of evidence. Over the next two or three years, there was several other discoveries of items of either parchment or, or, or pottery or um, stones that were dug up which had reference to either the house of David or King David or David's reign or the state of David. The, the name was just there. And suddenly there was this body of evidence which had been produced from different archaeological digs over time. And he said, now, no historian questions that there was once a King David who lived around the same time as the King David that we read about in Scripture. The character of David has been, has been verified. You see, I don't know why, but I, I do know that God does reveal evidence to us. But God wants us to have faith. He wants us in our hearts, not just in our minds, to think, right, well, I've seen the evidence, so it must be true. He wants us in our hearts to look at the teachings of Jesus to look at the character of Jesus, the example that Jesus set, and to have a desire to follow Jesus with our lives. You see, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There are so many people in the world who are, who are lost, and we can help that process of seeking them and saving them. The work of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve we should be, as a church, a body of servants, people who want to, to identify needs in our communities and to do what we can to address those needs, to help people who need help and to work out how best we can do that because that is helping out in the, the role that Jesus was sent for. I like the next one. The son of man came eating and drinking. I'm good at that. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. We shouldn't be scared of being accused of mixing with the wrong sort. In fact, we should mix with the wrong sort, because in God's eyes, there is no wrong sort. In God's eyes, there are just people that he has created, lives that he has ordained and planned. And so we are invited to join in the work of Jesus. But first of all, we need to know Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. If you have a moment this week, I wonder if perhaps you'd like to examine some of the teachings of Jesus, some of the words of Jesus, and then decide, are they the words of a madman? Do they contain the evil of the devil of hell? as Lewis puts it. And if the answer is no to both of those questions, then what is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? When I went through this process, got to the point of accepting that Jesus existed. Next week, we'll go through the process of looking at his teachings and his claims and establishing whether or not we can accept that he was and is who he claimed to be. But right now, let's pray and then we're going to finish 
with a final song. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son. And Lord, I pray that if there is anybody here who, who has been, who's been questioning the existence of Jesus, I just pray that you will guide them in looking at the evidence. For those of us, Lord, who have accepted Jesus, I pray that you won't let us become stale in our faith, just flippantly accepting without questioning, because we know, Lord, that you want us to, to question and to test, because it's by doing that that our faith grows, our understanding of you grows. But Father, we, we thank you that Jesus is with us now. Father, we thank you that his, his presence and his love can still be seen amongst us. And Father, we know that there are still tragic things going on in the world. Father, we still pray for Ukraine and for the awful things that are happening over there. Father, we pray, as, as Ian mentioned earlier, for the families affected by the shooting in, in Texas this week. Father, we know there are so many awful situations in the world and sometimes we can feel overwhelmed because we just cannot reconcile that with, with a God of love, a God who is all-powerful. But Father, help us to have faith. Faith that you are in control. Faith that you have everything planned, that you know every detail, that one day you will reconcile your people to you. And that we will have the privilege of dwelling in your kingdom for eternity. Father God, help us in our faith. And help us in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Saviour's love for me. Father God, we thank you that as we go out into the world this week, we go knowing that we're in the presence of a God who loves us. But not just us, the people that we will meet, the friends, the family, the colleagues, the neighbours, the, the people on the street, whoever we meet, Lord, none of them are a stranger to you. And so, Father, help us to be servant-hearted. Help us to have time to listen. Help us to remember to make sure that the details of our character ring true when we, when we say that we would like them to reflect the details of the character of Jesus. Father, bless us, we pray. Strengthen us. Encourage us. And may we be the ones that share the goodness and the grace of Jesus in the world this week. Bless us as we go, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.